the holiness of God. Man, what a insanely huge, massive, deep, scary, scary subject. Um, before we jump into to the text today, I, I just want to say um, what we're talking about today in our, our four-part series on the glory of God. I just want to let you guys know there is no way possible that Jeff Robinson could ever even scratch the surface of the holiness of God ever, ever. Even more so, an entire series on the holiness of God would be inadequate. But to touch on this as in relation to God's glory in one message, um, it may be a little bit nuts. And so this is possibly one of the most serious uh, dead level realities that we could ever discuss, regardless if you're here today and you're, uh, you're a believer in Christ, you're a Christ follower, or whether you still have questions or whether you're just rejecting it. This topic, properly understood, is absolutely crucial. I could not overestimate that or overexplain that. So what I'm going to ask you to do, what we're going to do right now, is we're going to pray one more time. And I want to ask you to ask the Lord to give us a collective understanding, a, a heart opening to this topic. Um, because we live in a world of vehicles and computers and oil changes and fast food and dishes and dirty diapers and jobs and things that are just stuff, right? And so to go from the mundane, even though there's value in all of that, to talking about almost what it seems like in our culture, just an abstraction, just an abstract idea can be a stretch. It, to us, is so foreign to the way that we think, the way that we act, to the way that life is as most of us know it. So let's just, let's ask the Lord to really, really help us this morning because um, this is an incredibly massive topic. So let's, let's do that as a family today. Father, we want to, as a, as a family, as a church, humble ourselves before you this morning and say that you have revealed yourself clearly in Scripture and for that we thank you. We thank you for the word of God and how it is without error. It is true. It is, it is what you have used and what you are continuing and you will use to show us that we have need of you. And Lord, in scripture, you speak about your holiness and we're going to try to do the best job that we can today, God, but we're asking for a supernatural move that can only come from your hand today. That you will give us a spiritual, intellectual, heart, all all of that collected together, understanding a light coming on in the darkness type of moment to where we can just catch a glimpse of how holy you are and that we would leave this place absolutely and totally changed. And we know that we can't do any of this in our own strength. But we can do all things through you. And so we ask God for your help today. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's the big deal with God's glory? 
If you've been in church or been around the Bible for any amount of time, that subject has come up. So what we're going to do today is God gives us a strength is we're going to look at Leviticus chapter 19. We're going to kind of hone in there on verses one and two, and then we're going to go to first Peter in the New Testament chapter one, where Leviticus 19 is quoted. So this is God's desire for both the Old Testament believers and for New Testament believers. And God reveals, number one, who he is, the core essence of the character of God. And then he gives us an awesome open door to say, here's my desire for your life. So let's read Leviticus chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You, this is plural, You shall be holy. Here's the reason. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. And he gives a little bit of description there in verse 3. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. And if you can hold your place there and then go to First Peter chapter 1, the Bible tells us, beginning in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Here it is, verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the empty or the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. There's so much more that we could get into But the idea here is that God's holiness is on full, is God's glory on full display. And so here's, here's the question. What is God's glory? Well, there in your notes, we'll just walk through this. Glory in in the Hebrew mind, the Hebrew culture language represents um, an idea of heaviness or weight or worthiness. It means, it means to point to something that is of absolute importance. Harper's Bible Dictionary says the most important Hebrew word um, for glory, kabod, means weight or importance. Thus, to have glory is to be weighty or important to oneself or others. It's kind of like when you when you talk about subjects that are really, really, really important, and we say, "Man, that is that is heavy. That is a heavy, heavy subject." It's kind of like when you do something great and people applaud you for that. Whether it, whether it's making the dean's list or whether it's building something that's awesome or if you're a bargain hunter, you look for that and you're like, I, I, they say, wow, how did you find that deal? Or if you win something, uh, today we, we give participation trophies to everybody so winning doesn't really mean anything anymore. You just kind of 
get rewarded for showing up, and that's not the way the real world works, but um, I'll just go ahead and, and leave that trail for the rabbits. But all of that, when we are rewarded for something great, just almost that awe, that sense of, you've done something awesome, therefore you deserve praise. That is like a microcosm of an atom compared to God's glory. Everything points to God's glory. I mean, the book of Psalms, it talks about how the heavens, right? The firmament, the stars, all of that points to, like we studied last week, man, if God actually exists, like if this book is true, man, God has to be incredibly, incredibly big, like powerful, like not the God who's worrying about what's going to happen the next day, but like if, if he actually exists and is the one who brought all of this about, I mean, just look at the design of the human body. And we're going to get into that here in a few weeks. We're going to take six weeks this fall and look at all of the arguments for the existence of God and against. It's going to be absolutely awesome. We're going to stir up every hornet's nest that we can find. For the glory of God. I can't wait. So if you've got friends who have questions or they're atheists or skeptic, man, bring them on. We're going to get into science and philosophy and history and textual evidence. And is the Bible, does it have, actually have historical references outside the Bible? All of that awesome stuff. But we look at that and say, boy, the universe is so big. And it's so much there. If God exists, he's got to be amazing. But as we looked last week, once you start to look from the telescope in and you make a landing on planet earth, you know, as beautiful as it is, planet earth is full of suffering, just ravaged with it. You don't, you can go, you can go to Manhattan, you can go to a gated community, you can go to the slums of New Delhi and you will find everywhere in between absolute suffering because you see the world as we have it today is not the world as God originally created it. We know the biblical story, Adam and Eve sinned, and from that death and disease and, 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 and all of the things that make life terrible entered into the world. But God progressively sent prophets to the nation of Israel. He gave them the Old Testament law, which it's amazing. For those of you that enjoy history, go read what secular historians would say about the law of Moses. Not the people who write blogs in their pajamas in their mom's basement. All right, like there's a difference. People who've actually put in the time and done the research and done the peer-reviewed process, they'll say, man, the, the Old Testament law is so crucial in civilization because it actually gave some semblance of human value and human life and human... I mean, it's amazing that God gave what made civilization possible. And then he... Raised up a people group, the Israelites, from that. And if you want to have some time this afternoon and look at some hairy reading, just back up a chapter from Leviticus 19 and read chapter 18. It is not rated G. You will not see that read on the Disney Channel. Not Hallmark Channel won't touch it. It is stuff that we read like, why would you ever have to tell anybody don't do that? Like, Animals and, and mother-in-laws and, and things that relate to that. You're like, who needs to be told that? Everybody in the Near East in the time of Moses. A culture that was given over to full-scale infanticide to where they would give their children to Molech, this false god, this false idol, and burn their children alive? 
I mean, that's even uncomfortable. I just mentioned that right now. We can't even conceive that because we have the word of God. We have thousands of years of a Judeo-Christian ethic still in the West that establishes that there's something intrinsically valuable about human beings. And from that twisted time and that twisted world, God raised up a people, a persecuted minority group from Egypt, and he told them in chapter 19, you shall be holy. You shall be separate. I've got different plans for you. You're not going to be like all the other nations. And what did the Hebrews do to most of the prophets that God sent? They killed them. Then you come to the end of the Old Testament. You've got 400 years of silence. And then God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send my son. He didn't just think of it like that. It was God's plan. But what did they do with his son? They killed his son. And as we looked at last week, God says, I'm going to raise him from the dead. If you repent of your sin, you honor him, you place your faith in him. I'll forgive you of everything you've ever done. Crazy offer, right? You're like, that makes me wonder if God actually does know the future. Like, if you think about that, man, the fact that God would actually forgive people, sins, past, present, and future, but he knows the future and he's still, because he's so, I can't wait till next week, we're going to talk about the love of God. He's so loving and he's so holy that he satisfied the requirements of his wrath because of Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus took God's wrath for us, but yet Jesus is alive today for us to have a faith in him and to be forgiven of everything that we've ever done, to be made new people. That is insane. And throughout the life of the church, the history of the church, you have had uh, religion after religion, um, dictator after dictator who has tried to eradicate the teachings of Christianity to destroy the word of God. But here we are, probably a lot of Gentiles here. Probably the majority here would say, I'm not full-blooded Jew. But we're a whole ocean away on a whole different continent. And we're in this place called Virginia. And we have a Bible and we're talking about Jesus. God's plan to come as a baby, to send his son. And through all of that, the the enemy tried to annihilate it, to squash it. Jesus is still king and the gospel is still making headways in the roughest places around the world. Can we give praise to God for that? Like when you think about it, it's crazy. It is crazy. And from the beginning of the Hebrews being called by God to be his people, to us as New Testament believers today, God's standard is still holiness. And how did God choose to grow the church? You know what he could have done? He could have said, you know what, I've called them to be holy. The Hebrews, they kept screwing up. I called these disciples. They just didn't get it. Peter had the foot in the mouth thing, right? Like he would just make mistakes all the time, wouldn't understand things. So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to use the angels. Like if you're God, you tell the angel to do something, and the angel does it. And when the angel shows up and gives the message, all the people think they're going to die. Like what? why didn't God do that? Because the Bible, as we looked last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that God chose the foolishness of preaching. The foolishness of the gospel, meaning God has entrusted his eternal message to people with feet of clay. You and I. We've got down days. We've got up days. 
We don't always do the right thing. We have anger issues. Some may have addiction issues. We have marital conflict at home. We have a past. We have guilt and shame that kind of haunt us. Like all of those issues, when you look at who Jesus chose, it would have been like, does he actually know the hearts of men? Why did he choose those guys? I mean, he chose the professional tax cheats. You get, you got Matthew, you've got all of these misfits, you've got like the, the religious, the, the, the zealot, like he was part of the zealots, like they would actually shank people in a crowd. They would stab, they would carry out political assassinations, like a guy from that wild group. And then Jesus chose a guy who was gonna betray him, like how, how did, why did Jesus choose those people so that the glory of God would be displayed? Because people couldn't look at that and would be like, well obviously, they graduated from Stanford there in Jerusalem. That's why. Like Jesus, Jesus didn't go to Athens. Like, give me your top level PhD philosophers. He went to the low. And so praise God that the gospel is not about the exaltation of us. It's about the exaltation of God. And the glory of God is everything that we should live for to point to how great God is. To say, you know what, the reason why I work hard is not just to make a paycheck. The reason why I work hard is that people could see my integrity, to see my character. And so that they'll see, man, God is awesome. Everything that we do in life should point to the glory of God. And then we come to this subject of holiness. Um, for some people today, the, the subject of holiness can be confusing because we look at, uh, some people will say, well, there are holy men, like in Hinduism, the ones who are out on the street praying. That's specifically what Jesus said not to do, right? Like, don't do your praying to be seen by people. Sometimes we look at religious groups uh, with our Roman Catholic friends and, and all of the pomp and circumstances in the robe, and we, we think that an outward type of garment has to do with holiness. But holiness means otherness. It means being separate from sin. When God said to Israel, you shall be holy because I am holy, what God was doing is he was calling out a people and he was making them brand new, giving them a new purpose for life. In the Old Testament, God kind of gave them some ground rules for what it looked like, practical holiness. There were dietary restrictions, dietary cleanliness, that if you were a practicing Hebrew in the Old Testament, even today, there would be no shrimp. Y'all all right? Okay, no shrimp, no catfish, no shellfish, um, whatever had fins and scales that swam, like that's the only thing you could eat uh, out of the water. And then you, like if you wanted to have a, a camel sandwich, you couldn't do that. The land animals had to have cloven hoof and chew the cud. And by the way, if you ever want to do a study on that, the biblical dietary law is absolutely uh, far healthier than the way a lot of us eat today. It's a really interesting study. I don't want to get you guys totally confused um, because you don't gain salvation by what you eat and what you don't eat according to Jesus. All right. So, um, but you also have the, the ritual cleanliness to where if you touched a dead body or touched an unclean animal or you touch blood, there was a purification process. There was also the moral cleanliness to where you had to advocate justice. And when you look at the Old Testament, you've got the, the, the temple of Solomon, one of the great seven wonders of the ancient world. And inside the temple, there was the sanctuary. And inside that, it was called the Holy of Holies. And it was a place to where the high priest would enter once a year and he would burn incense and then take, take the the blood of a sacrificed, pure, clean animal and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. 
And by doing so, it was a temporary atonement for his sins and the sins of the nation. And when Jesus died on the cross, the Gospels record, this is mind-blowing as we'll come back to it, that on the cross, when Jesus died, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies in the temple there, that veil, they said, was possibly over four inches thick, was torn in two. When I was a teenager, I saw the uh, power team. Anybody here, here seen the power team back, back in the day? These guys that, that love the Lord and they've got, like, they literally have muscles coming out of their earlobes. Like, that's how strong they are. These guys are just beyond jacked. I mean, they're blowing up water balloons and taking steel bars, putting them in their teeth and bending them into a U-shape. I mean, I went home and I just found some piece of paneling board, put it across my weight bench, wrapped a sock around my elbow and was in there busting stuff. Like, me and my buddies were absolutely fired up. It was awesome. But one of the things that they did is they took a phone book and they began to tear phone books. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that, but if you can do that... Uh, I will call you sir or ma'am. All right, like that's what you call somebody who can tear a phone book. But I just thought about that, man, how difficult that was. You had this huge veil, I mean, from top to the bottom of the temple. And how, if you've seen the passion of the Christ, it was like somebody just ripped it in two. That's craziness. And it was God telling not just the Hebrews, but to the world, the satisfaction for sin has been taken care of. Jesus Christ, my son, is the Lamb of God. So they could look through and see the Holy of Holies. Because when we look at Jesus, we see who God is. And we'll explain more about that. God called these people to be holy. There was also doctrinal cleanliness to where he says, don't serve other gods. And that was a lot more, for those of you that want to dig a little bit deeper, that was a lot more than don't take a piece of wood, make a, make a little Buddha-shaped man and bow down to it. It had everything to do with ritual, um, and we have children's church here, ritual and they're not in here, ritual uh, sexualization of large groups of people and stamping a religion onto it. That was Canaanite worship. It was that, everything down to infanticide. So God's not just saying, don't bow down to little statues. He's saying, be pure in your actions. And what he's, the heart of God's holiness is when he says, I'm calling you as my people to be holy. He's saying that children should be like their father. We should resemble our father. And as he is holy, so we should be holy. And we should act and holiness. And as we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, that God's desire for the church, for us, is to walk in holiness. Holiness is to be other. It means to walk separate from sin. And this is kind of where um, I have a lot of difficulty because understanding God's holiness and fully what that means is really a scary, scary topic. If you want to take a note, in Isaiah chapter 6, there was a godly, godly man, a prophet, Isaiah. And he had a vision of some sort. And he said, I, 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 I saw the Lord. And he saw the Lord and he didn't die. And the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And like, it was this this experience to where he was able to just see a small part of the holiness of God and the glory of God. And do you know what he did? 
He didn't do this. Praise God. He didn't get his worship stance on. He didn't do that. He didn't pull out his pen and paper and start taking notes. He didn't do what some of us ignorantly but arrogantly assume. Boy, when I see God, I'm going to ask him. No, no, no. When we see God, we're going to probably be like Isaiah. And he said, woe is me. Woe is me. Like when he saw the Lord, he saw, I'm not that. He is, God is, everything that should be perfect beauty and holiness. And woe is me. Like, look at me. And he says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I don't always talk the way that I should. It's silent in here. Preachers sin too. Newsflash. Sinners saved by grace. He says, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Like his first response was not, wow. It was, woe is me. And I think, brothers and sisters, we've got to get back to the holiness of God. The fact that God, if, if he did not Hold his wrath back. We would be consumed before we ever had a chance to get saved. But God gave us mercy. He gave us mercy. And to see him for who he is. And to know who we are. Man, that's a life changing experience. I've struggled a whole week. Like two weeks really. Understanding how to get this across. But when we see God for who he is. It changes us. Because we say, woe is me. Woe is me. You see, when we see God, just even a small glimpse of his holiness, we we don't know how to handle it. And it's not a self-incriminating type of low esteem. Well, I should probably work on this. He says, I am undone. I can't do anything. I can't, I can't make it up. I can't make up the difference. Woe is me, meaning I am undone. I have no chance. And when we see God that way, man, Rocky Mountain Baptist Church, when we see God that way, it gives us an incredible humility to see I am undone. The premarital sex, the going too far with my boyfriend or girlfriend, the things I've been looking at on the internet, the way that I speak, the shady business deals that I do, the stuff that maybe my husband or wife doesn't even realize is on the radar. When I get angry at people and I either use profanity or use harsh language or I use it when they leave, the desire to use people to get stuff, all of that, when we see God, we say, I'm undone. And then and then in, in Isaiah chapter 6, there was a, tongs that one of the cherubim had and and it touched his lips and that was a way i mean imagine seeing that happen this burning coal and hearing that flesh sizzle it was a way of picturing the forgiveness and the cleansing that god gives he said i'm a man of unclean lips and god says i can change that but before we ever are changed by god we have to realize that we are undone Are we tracking together this morning? Like you and I can never, ever, 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 in a million years, ever be good enough to atone for what we have already done. Never. The mistakes of the past, we say, well, Jeff, that was years ago. It's still on your record, bro. 
Like it's still there. Until it's wiped, it's still there. And only the blood of Jesus can forgive. Only the blood of Jesus can cleanse. If you have been saved, there's a, there's a verse, there's so much more that we're not going to be able to get into, but there's a verse in your outline I'd encourage you to write down. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14, for the believers, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You see now, Jeff, I thought that you said getting saved is not an issue of me stopping cussing or stopping these things. That's exactly right. We get saved by grace through faith. And that comes from God and God alone. But the way that that is evidenced is by a pursuit of holiness. None of us will ever be there, but it is the direction that God gives us when we get saved to pursue Jesus Christ If there's areas in your life, and this invitation is really for believers, if there are areas in your life that God has shown you, they said, this should not be there for my child. I have called you to be holy as I am holy. That is a practical outworking of what God has already worked inside of us. Does that make sense? Us living in holiness is not us separating ourselves from people that we consider to be bad. Because according to God, there is none righteous, no, not one. That's all of us. But practical holiness, walking in holiness, doesn't matter what you wear. I'm not talking about garments and robes, but it has to do with following Jesus and imitating Him as one of His children. Stumbling through that, repenting, confessing, allowing when we see God not to close our eyes and turn around and run the other way, but to say, God, I am undone. Would you please help me? Remember Isaiah, I'm I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of people of unclean lips. What he's saying is that I can't go to somebody else to help me with this. Only God can help with the heart change. And God and not human effort is the source of holiness that is so incredibly important. So how do, how do our lives really begin to change to where we begin to see the glory of God and to understand the holiness of God? It begins with an experience from God. Jesus says, if you seek, you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened, right? Jesus says, seek. If you're here this morning and you know you need to be changed by Christ, seek Him. Give your life to Him today. But for a follower of Jesus Christ, you've already experienced the forgiveness of Christ. You've already been born again. Here's the verse, Romans chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. So this is the Apostle Paul. He's not saying, I'm commanding. He says, look, as brothers, as family, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Man, that means that our physical bodies, our desires, our hands, our feet, our mouths are to daily be presented to God as a sacrifice, but yet a sacrifice that continues to live. In verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. To see the Lord high and lifted up means that we change. A lot of us can look back at things that we've experienced in our life, whether it's war, 
whether it's something really good on the other end, whatever it may be, and we say that experience has left me forever changed. Like I'll never be the same. I've talked to some parents who say, man, whenever my first child was born, like grown men say, I was just blubbing like a baby. Like there's no way I could ever be the same, ever, ever. If my child grows up, if my child passes away, like it's a forever life-changing experience. Forever I am changed. But boy, when we think about those types of things and then think about seeing God, it's kind of like the sun. The sun provides light and warmth to our planet. But the closer we get to that, the less we can handle it. And to try to approach the sun in its fullness And no shield means you and I will be absolutely vaporized. That's the holiness of God. If it was not for Jesus Christ, none of us would have a chance. But I praise God for his mercy. And that a holy God and other God is the God that chose to enter into our dirty world. He did like him, not me. Not a religious leader, not somebody with education, or not somebody who knows how to fix and build things, but God entered into a dirty world to save people for his glory. Christian, is your life oriented to that end?